0: <laughs> that, that wasn't me. Right. Well, well, if you can't get dressed up on Easter, when can you get dressed up? I'm still holding my breath to have my own talk show. So, someday, someday. All right, how's everybody doing? Good cool. morning. It is a good morning. Amen. I believe it. All right, so. It's Easter. It is. Happy Easter. <laughs> Happy Easter. All right, let's start off by praying. If you'll bow your heads with me. Father God, we thank you so much for this day and what it commemorates, what we're celebrating today, the resurrection of your son, Jesus. We thank you for your goodness and for your salvation plan for us to rescue us from being apart from you. We praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, you may have noticed, if you have attended here for a while, that we kind of don't always do everything the way you predict. Uh, We did our love series in January, not February, things like that. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Remember that? Um, So, for Easter, I'm going to be talking about Palm Sunday. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Not just Palm Sunday, but... I'm going to do a little backtracking at the beginning of this message. And I know you're thinking, backtracking, you just started. That doesn't make any sense. But follow with me. So the typical Easter Sunday sermon does focus on how Jesus was brutally tortured and died on the cross to be a sacrifice in our place to pay the price for our sins. Then he rose from the dead three days later. Yeah, that's, that's what we're celebrating today. Showing that he had power over death and thus could offer us not just forgiveness, but also eternal life with him. That's Easter 101. But I want to go back to the Palm Sunday account to look into the motivations behind why Jesus did what he did. So Palm Sunday was last week, and it celebrates Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem just days before the crucifixion. So, the well known Palm Sunday account is found in the book of Matthew. So, it's Matthew 21, 8 through 11. So, let's read that. It says, Most of the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Jesus was in the center of the procession, and the people all around him were shouting, Praise God for the Son of David. Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise God in highest heaven. The entire city of Jerusalem was in an uproar as he entered. Now, I find it interesting that in this verse, it actually says that most of the crowd spread their garments or their cloaks on the ground, and some people spread out palm leaves. Yet we call it Palm Sunday. But I guess Cloak Sunday just wouldn't have quite the same ring to it. It Sounds kind of like some weird cult's ice cream social. (laughs) We would like to invite you to Cloak Sunday. (laughs) It's creepy. Now, thanks, Tom Cruise. Okay, it's, it's, it's actually thought that back in the day, palm branches were laid down to welcome home a returning king after he was gone to battle, or some other high-profile warrior who was coming back home to his kingdom. Well, Jesus deserved those gestures, because if you believe what the Bible says about him, then he was the king of kings. He was the ruler of all rulers. He was the son of God, and not just that, but also this other title that he had, and that was the Messiah. Now, the Messiah was a powerful ruler that the people of Israel had been hearing about in prophecies from the Old Testament Bible for hundreds and hundreds of years. They actually thought Jesus was this guy, and they were ecstatic about that, because the Messiah was foretold to be a conqueror, a king, somebody who would bring justice, healing, and redemption. And the Jews, at that point, really, really desperately wanted justice. They wanted healing and redemption, too, but they really wanted justice. <laughs> because at that time, they were occupied by the Roman Empire. And military occupations are not pretty. We're probably most familiar with how like, the Nazis occupied France and Poland and some of the other countries during World War II. And we know what that looked like. We know how harshly those people were treated. Well, at this point in history, the Roman occupation of Jerusalem had not quite ramped up to that level yet. It wasn't quite that murderous and barbaric yet. But it was still bad. It was still overwhelming with oppression and persecution, and there was little to no freedom for any of the people of Israel. So the Jewish people were all too eager to give this new Messiah a hero's welcome because they wanted to watch him vanquish the Roman oppressors. So it wasn't just... Jesus, we're so glad you're here. You're such a cool guy. It was, Jesus, we're so glad you're here. Sick <laughs> They expected to see Jesus dish out justice, like sloppy joes in an elementary school cafeteria. <laughs> yeah. Is that taking you back? Kind of the setting of being in a middle school kind of just puts me right there. So <laughs> They expected him to make things right, to take his place as the king of God's people and to establish a kingdom on the earth. They're thinking, let's get ready to rumble, right? And Jesus actually knew that's what these people expected of him. He knew that's what they were thinking. So, WDJD, what did Jesus do? (laughs) He did everything they expected him to. You might be taken aback by that statement if you're familiar with this story, but it's true. When he was riding into town on that donkey, looking into the hopeful eyes of this adoring mass of people, he fully intended to do everything they expected him to do, like save them, love them, protect them, heal them, set things right, establish his kingdom on earth. He just wasn't going to do it the way they wanted him to. And I think we do that too. We want Jesus in our lives. We have desires for him to improve our situations, to restore our hearts and heal us. We want him to do something amazing and miraculous in our midst. We want him to empower us to rise above the pain and struggle and negativity of this life. We also have expectations of how we think he could best do that. So we can kind of relate to those people on the road, right? Yes, they wanted him to take his place as the king of God's people and establish a kingdom on the earth. But unfortunately, a lot of their motivation was just so they could become the elite class of citizens, placed into power over their oppressors, able to say, see, we told you so, but you're sorry you ever messed with us now. Truth be told, a lot of them just wanted to switch places with the Romans. They wanted a role swap. Well, Jesus didn't do things their way, and that didn't go over well. We know that shortly after this, Jesus was arrested, he was unjustly tried, and crucified, all spearheaded by the local religious leaders. They were jealous of his fame and his renown. He was getting really popular, and they didn't like that. They were enraged by his defiance of their twisted, self-glorifying laws. He broke their hold on controlling the people (coughs) in their midst through guilt and false religion. They were vengeful over his ability to outsmart them at every turn leaving them looking foolish, standing around gaping like a Kardashian at a Mensa meeting, all in front of the very people they were trying to manipulate. But they weren't the only ones. There was an entire crowd of people who were there asking for him to be crucified. It wasn't just the Pharisees. It became obvious pretty quickly to these people that Jesus had no intention of starting a coup against Rome. He was not going to wage war on all those soldiers in skirts. It's likely that some of the same people who sang Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord were the same people shouting Crucify him just a couple of days later. Is that because they just got swept up with the crowd? Was it just mob mentality that took over? Or is it because they couldn't stand their feelings of betrayal and loss? They couldn't stand that they weren't getting what they wanted the way They wanted it. Well, we don't talk about this next thing much in Christian circles, but many Jewish historians point out that in the Jewish tradition, most of these people were expecting multiple messiahs. There was a prophecy about Messiah Ben-David, who was expected to reign over the world as a powerful Jewish king, setting all things right, vanquishing Israel's enemies, and ushering in a universal unending peace. Then... There was also a prophecy about Messiah ben Joseph, who was expected to die fighting Israel's enemies, and it was foretold that once he died, massive calamity was going to come upon the nation of Israel. So you can kind of understand why they had a hard time with the idea that this could be the same guy. Some biblical scholars think that their sudden realization that Jesus wasn't looking like the powerful ruler Messiah ben David, he wasn't going to set them free from the Romans, but he was acting more like Messiah Ben Joseph, a guy who was supposed to die and then bring even more hardship down on their country. That very well may have led them to turn on him. They weren't getting what they wanted, how they wanted it. They wanted a champion, a fighter, a killer, not a healer. They wanted somebody to put the wrongdoers to death, not be a martyr. Well, Jesus wanted to do a lot more than they wanted him to. He was continually communicating to them and saying, I didn't just come to set you free from this temporary oppression and bondage. I came to set you free from eternal oppression and bondage. Yes, I want to heal your illnesses, but more importantly, much more importantly, I want to heal you inside. I want to heal your broken heart, your soul, your spirit. He didn't just want to give their country some political strength some national power. He wanted to strengthen them from the inside out. And yeah, they wanted to be set free, but sadly, just from the bullies in their midst, not from sin or eternal death, not from lust or greed or addiction or their broken relationships or their loneliness or their separation from God, just those guys. kind of funny to do that and then a couple of heads turn and there's nobody over there it's just it's just an illustration so there's a band that i like a lot and they have this song called savior and i think it kind of wraps up this point really nicely the lyrics to the chorus are we're all looking for a savior but not one who saves we're looking for a savior one who retaliates what do we want a savior for to repair our broken souls, to help us connect with and understand God and fill that void that's in us that aches when we're alone, to show us how to love people, how to actually become the good people that we wish we were, the ones that we know deep down we were always supposed to be, the ones we pretend to be? Or do we just want a genie to give us the stuff we want? Do we want somebody to gather up all the people that we deem unsalvageable and kick tail and take names? Are we so blind that we'd rather He vindicate us than repair us? Sometimes. Personally speaking, anyway. But we need Him to work on us first. Romans 3 23 is a well known verse. It says that everyone sinned, and that we are all unworthy of even being in the presence of God. Some people talk about how they'd like to like, crane kick Adam in the face for eating the forbidden fruit and then starting this whole mess, but that verse in Romans tells us we've all done it. We've all made that same exact choice. We've all had a choice in front of us, and we knew I can either choose God's way or I can choose my way, and if I do that, that's a sin and we chose poorly. We need Jesus. We need a savior in here before we ever need him to clean up anything out there. If the list that we have in our minds of the people who are most desperately in need of Jesus doesn't have our name on top of that list, we need to rethink how we're viewing Jesus. I have to consciously put my name back up on top of that list on a regular basis. We've all sinned. Yeah, you know, maybe we haven't murdered somebody. We haven't done any of those big sins that some other people might have. I'm not Hitler after all. I've led a pretty good life. I've done some very nice, kind things in my lifetime. But the thing is, when we look to the Bible, the qualifier for holiness, the qualifier for being able to enter heaven and be back in a right relationship with God is not better than Hitler. It's as perfect and holy as Jesus we need Jesus <laughs> we need him to fix that for us so what do we want Jesus to do and how do we want him to do it it's a really easy answer to say I want him to do it however he sees fit he's God after all that's the easy answer but I gotta say just honestly I am embarrassed at how often I limit his work in my life because I don't move forward because I can't see how he's wanting to do things, and I feel like he's so not doing it the way he should. So I just kind of sit there stuck until I move, you know, when I finally get it through my thick skull that I need to be doing things the way he wants them done. If I'm honest, I'm just like the bandwagoners in that crowd. My first thoughts on resolving an issue are not What do you want to do, Jesus? its He needs to change everything else. He needs to change those other people. And then things will be cool. And that's what Israel was thinking. Just change this circumstance and we're going to be cool. The funny thing is, Israel already had what they wanted. They'd been free before. They'd been out of bondage before. They weren't always occupied by the Romans. If you read the Old Testament, it is a broken record. And if you're under the age of 20, a record's a big vinyl black thing, it makes music, sounds way better than your phone. Anyway, sometimes they break and they skip and then you hear the same thing over and over and over again. That's what a broken record means. Anyway, so the Old Testament is a broken record of the nation of Israel, right? In good standing with God, things are great. Then they start looking around and they start worshiping demons and idols. They get taken away into captivity or just completely annihilated by a bunch of other people around them. They realize we made a big mistake, they pray to God and say, God, please help us, come rescue us. We did something wrong. And then He does. He shows up, He rescues them, He helps them out. Everything's good, everything's awesome. They go, Thank you, God, you rescued us, you're awesome. And then they go right back and do the same stupid stuff over and over and over and over and over and over again. It it just doesn't stop. It's crazy. What did that tell us? The answer to my problems is not me in a different set of circumstances. The answer to my problems is Christ in me. That's, you can tweet that. The answer to me, the answer to my problems is never me in a different set of circumstances. The answer to my problems is Christ in me. Jesus does things differently than we would. He was and is unlike anyone else before or after him. And I want to do a small sidebar on this note, because it's become a popular notion these days that the accounts of Jesus's life are just retellings or rehashings of other myths and gods pulled from other religions, from ancient cultures, and just all hobbled together to make this new religion. This keeps growing to the extent that last year on Easter, I actually had a buddy of mine wish me a happy resurrection of Mithras Day. (laughs) Yeah, he he was kind of being a little snarky, but you know. I love them anyway. Someone else in this church recently asked me about the whole Mithras connection uh, a couple of weeks ago, too. So I want to take a moment and address this. Mithra and or Mithras is a god in one of these ancient religions that people say Christianity was just merely hijacking. Jesus was nothing new. There are claims on websites all over in one extremely popular YouTube video that say Mithras' story is identical to Jesus's, Yet, Mithras appeared way before Jesus ever did. However, you can fact-check this stuff. <laughs> you can read the work from actual historical experts on mythology, including the brightest minds who are professors of mythrology. <laughs> yes, that's a real job. <laughs> These guys get paid by universities to study this stuff. The top two guys in the field are John Hinnels and Franz Cumont, Franz Cumont, <laughs> as I like to call him. I'll do you a favor, and I will not read all this stuff in Frans Comant's voice as I imagine it in my head. But that YouTube video says that Mithras was born of a virgin just like Jesus. But, in truth, if you look at the work of these guys who studied it all, the mythical Mithras legend says he was born out of a rock. I don't think we need to discuss the romantic escapades of geological items, so let's move along. Challengers claim Mithras was born on December 25th, just like Jesus, but Christianity doesn't say he was born on December 25th. We just celebrate Christ's birthday then. Mithras' legend says he was born as a grown man, not a human baby. He did not, as the YouTube videos claim, have 12 disciples. Rather, he was followed by animals, but not 12 of them. He was never recorded as being a traveling teacher. He also did not sacrifice himself as the great bull of the sun. Rather, he battled a bull in the sky, protect the planet but not to pay for the sins of mankind and there was actually no reference ever anywhere to Mithras having died much less rising from the dead yes Mithras legend does say that shepherds were there when he was born but it says they're the ones who pulled him out of that rock he got born from and the first time that item ever appeared in Mithras mythology was an entire century that's 100 years kids after the resurrection of Jesus Mithras ain't Jesus (laughs) There are tons more facts that are easily disproved, and not just dis- dis- disproved, but, like, like, destroyed. When you just read the writings of the guys who make their living off of studying this stuff, over and over again, similarities to mythological gods are either complete lies, or they're gross exaggerations, or they're actually little tidbits that were tacked on to ancient myths hundreds, sometimes thousands of years after the life of Jesus. This is not a new tactic. So don't let this stuff shake your faith for an instant. If somebody says Jesus is just a recycled myth, you can be confident that you can dig into those facts and prove that to not be true. There's nobody like Jesus. All right. Yeah, I hope that blessed somebody. Back on track. Something unique about Jesus. He does things really backwards. Like really, really, really backwards. All that 1st shall be last business, right? You do not become the most famous person in history by telling people to not talk about you. He did that. You don't start the most influential religion in the history of the world by picking stubborn simpletons and cowards as your disciples. You don't build a huge following by continually telling the people who are following you as your following builds, you guys are not going to be able to follow me or be my disciples if you're not just 100% committed. You're going to have to turn around and go back. No, 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 you want more people, Jesus. You want to build this thing and grow it. No, he's, he thins the herd on a regular basis. And come on, dude, you do not win a fight by dying. But he did all those things. Jesus' upside down, first shall be last stuff actually worked. So could it be that acting with humility could bring us our greatest successes and accolades? Could it be that serving others can put us in a place of leadership? Our silence can be the voice of wisdom. So many times what he intends to do looks like it could only lead to failure. Yet, it's the equivalent of a blueprint for worldwide domination. Maybe we should be focusing on how he wants to do things. And regardless of how it looked when he was up on that cross, that's exactly what he was doing. Worldwide domination. Universal domination. And not just claiming our world and universe as his own, but claiming us as his own. And not just dominating our world, but annihilating every sin and spiritual power that held us in bondage and separated us from our Creator. And we want this guy dominating the universe. Why? Because he's the most loving, most kind, compassionate just, merciful, benevolent, gracious King we could ever hope to have. We can finally know a world leader who always does what is right, who truly treats his people with equality, who always does what is best for his people, who can enable us to be the best version of ourselves that we always hoped we could be, to be in the presence of our Creator, forever. What is cracking a few Roman skulls compared to that? What is having him put our micromanaging misogynistic boss in his place compared to that? What is getting a better paycheck compared to that? What is taking this pain away compared to that? In the same backwards way, when we lay down our frail, sinful lives and submit them to Him, letting Him call the shots for us, we don't become slaves. We get kingship and righteousness and ultimate freedom. We are adopted as family members with God, not just His creations, but His children, just like Jesus. But it still doesn't end there. It's not just a one-time event. I've been a Christian almost all my life, yet following Christ still challenges me all the time to let go of ideas and behaviors that I've been wrongly convinced are part of me, to make decisions that might seem foolish to a lot of other people, but it sees Him be glorified, and I get to see Him continue to heal and improve me through that. And honestly, those decisions have not gotten easier. If I were smart, I would have figured out by now that I should just do what he asks. (laughs) Well, I have figured that out. It's just following through on what I figured out that I still need to work on. I still battle my idea of what's best. I still battle my pride and my fear. But thank God, he's already shown us that he's happy to work with stubborn simpletons and cowards that's good news for me. <laughs> it's good news for all of us, right? His love for us and his strength exceed our limitations. And his love for us was his motivation. Probably the most famous Bible verse of all time is John 3.16. And let's turn there. It says, God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, that means should not die in our sins and be eternally apart from God, but have eternal life. We need to realize that Jesus wants to do bigger, greater things in our lives than even we want him to. Jesus is always looking at things with eternity in perspective. And if we're following him, we have to take that mindset as well we can't get off track by putting too much focus on the needs and injustices of this world and not enough on the eternal impact and the consequences eternally of our actions yes we should absolutely care deeply about social issues and we should get involved in righting those wrongs we should reach out to those in need we should be christ's hands and feet to love those who are hurting we need to be feeding the hungry shelter the homeless, set free the enslaved, defend the unjustly attacked, minister to those in prison, and care for widows and orphans. But if we don't introduce people to Jesus while we're doing those things so that he can do the work in them that he desires to do, those good things have an end point in this lifetime. If we do great things here in this life, but we fail to share Christ with people, We're simply improving people's time on earth for a few years before they spend an eternity in hell. Let's not miss what God wants to do in our lives. What do you want Jesus to do in your life? What does Jesus want to do in your life? How do you want him to do it? Are you prepared that it will probably look a lot different than what you think would be the best way to go about it? What does he want to do in the lives of our friends, our family members, co-workers, fellow souls on this planet? Are we truly ready to say we want him to accomplish it in whatever way he sees fit? And are we willing to help him do it? Well, if you're here today and you don't yet know what it's like to have this kind of a relationship with Jesus, You haven't yet made him your Lord and your Savior. Today is a great day to start that relationship. In the Bible, in 1 John 1, 9, it says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Well, what does that mean? If we confess our sins, he is faithful. Faithful means he always does it. You can rely on him. You can count on him. He will do it. And just. That means it's right that he forgives you. He's God. He gets to make up the rules. So it doesn't matter what you think your sin is that's too bad for him to forgive. No matter how much you've sinned, no matter how far away from God you think you are, this verse says if you confess your sins, if you sincerely confess your sins, you sincerely repent, he is faithful and just to forgive you no one can say it's not fair God says it's fair God says it's just it's right that he forgives you to be cleansed of all unrighteousness if you want to know that forgiveness and know that you'll have this eternal life the Bible is talking about you want a clean slate just pray this prayer along with me let's have everybody pray this just repeat after me Lord Jesus I believe You are the Son of God. You died in my place to pay for my sins. You rose from the dead to give me eternal life. I accept your gift of salvation. I give my life to you. Be Lord over my life and save me Thank you for loving me. Thank you for saving me. Amen. All right. We're going to move into a time of communion now. And on the night Jesus was betrayed, before going to the cross, he was having dinner with his closest friends as they were celebrating the Jewish feast of Passover. The Bible says Jesus took some of the bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this to remember me. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this to remember me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. And that's why we do this. This is representative of the sacrifice that jesus did to pay for our sins by taking communion we're saying we accept this gift we accept what you've done on our behalf and we want to say communion is for anyone who has put their faith in jesus christ if you've made him your lord and savior it does not matter if you've been coming to church for decades and you've been a christian all your life it does not matter if this is your first day at church and you just said that prayer If you've put your faith in Christ, then please join us in communion. We want to invite you into that. But I also want to say if you are not yet a Christian, you're still figuring things out, we are thrilled that you're here today. But I want to encourage you to just take this time and stay at your seat. You can take some time to reflect on the truths that we've talked about today. Also, we're going to have two tables at the front of the stage. So whenever you're ready, please come forward, take a piece of bread, dip it into the juice. And then you can return to your seat. But as you do that, take time to focus on these elements as they represent the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf.